I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. The days are getting shorter and shorter. It's only 5pm and here in the south of England, the sky is already an inky black. And though I plan and prepare for this season, from wrapping up my hardy banana plant to putting on an extra jumper myself, I can still be taken by surprise with a touch of the winter blues. Which is why now, more than ever, it's important to be getting an ample serving of vitamin G. As established research published by RHS experts and the wider scientific community has shown how gardening can benefit our mental, physical and social well-being. We'll be learning from our very own RHS well-being specialist about how and why the scents in our garden can completely change and alter our mood. We'll also be exploring the fantastic Wisley Wellbeing Garden to hear how expert horticulturists have designed the space with wellness in mind. Plus, we head to a community garden in North London to hear why the friends of Gladstone Park come together in even the coldest months. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Guy Barter. Pleasant smells make us feel good. It seems like a given, but why have we evolved that way? How can humble shrubs and trees unlock our deepest memories and feelings without us even realising? What links olfaction, the process of smelling, with our subconscious? And how can we harness this human response to tailor our gardens for the optimal experience? These are some of the questions that RHS Wellbeing Fellow Dr. Lorianne Shaoman Pui has been researching with some interesting findings. What I'd like to talk about today is scent or our sense of olfaction. Of course, it is quite important in the botanical world, but it's also surprisingly important for us in how we sense our environments and how we react to our environments and things that happen around us. And it's very important, as I'll go on later to say, on how we process emotions and memories. So I'll briefly explain how olfaction works. Essentially, scents or odors are a mixture of chemical compounds that vaporize when they're released. So they might be in the air or in the water as well. Um, so their odors are volatile molecules and they activate a specific pattern of our sensory neurons at the top of our nasal cavity and that sends specific messages to our brain. In terms of what's going on inside our noses, so obviously they look quite 
boring from the outside, but inside is quite a fascinating complexity. So at the very top of our nasal cavity are olfactory receptors. When we breathe normally, only a very small proportion of the air actually reaches the top of our olfactory cavity. But when we sniff, there's more turbulence in the air. So the air goes around some of the erectile tissue that's in our noses and more air gets to the top to these olfactory receptors. That's why when we sniff, we kind of smell more because we're getting a higher density of the odor molecules. In the olfactory epithelium, so at the top of our nose, there are receptors that have hair-like cilia that increase the surface areas that allow us to detect these odor molecules. There are also little vacuoles, so little bubbles of liquid that send these messages directly to the brain. And olfaction is quite different to our other senses like vision or audition because the messages go straight to the central nervous system through very fine axons. So it doesn't have to go through the thalamus in the brain. It goes directly to the cortical so that happens microseconds faster than vision, for example. Interestingly, it also means that we don't require consciousness for scent to be processed. So you might be in a coma, for example, but still actually being able to perceive smells around you. The limbic or cortical part of the brain that processes smell is actually the same place of the brain that also processes emotions and memory. So this anatomical overlap is really the reason why sense becomes such a powerful trigger to memories or emotions. You might have had a particularly evocative flashback when you've smelled a certain smell. That is because it is literally the same part of the brain. And the reason why we think that is, is through evolution. We've established what scent is, but let's talk about what it means for our lived experience. Last month, we had the opportunity to do an activity on over 250 horticultural apprentices who came to Wisley for a discovery day. What we did is we gave them four bags of smells to smell. They did not know what the smells were, and they then had to indicate their immediate gut emotional response. So they had a little questionnaire that they could fill in for each of the four bags. And then we looked at their results. What we found following the activity and looking at the responses of the apprentices was that there was a huge variety in emotions that were provoked from these four different smells. So to start with bergamot, which is quite a citrusy smell. The highest emotion that was ranked was actually calmness. So people found it very calm. Some people found it invigorating, which is also pleasant, but more active than calmness. There was some relief. There was some joy. Interestingly, there were also fewer people who found it sad or made them feel nervous. The second smell was peppermint. Maybe no surprises here, but the majority of respondents found it made them feel more invigorated. So it's quite a minty smell, quite arousing. Maybe people feel more kind of waking up because that's the smell of their toothpaste in the morning. There were quite a number of people who found it quite disgusting or made them again feel angry. I don't know why this is. We weren't asking them, but potentially it has a link to memories of a dentist visit or something like that that they didn't quite like. The third smell, rose. Quite surprisingly here, I think, the highest response was actually disgust, and the second highest was invigorated, then we have calm and joy and relief. So there were some pleasant emotions, but overwhelmingly people found it quite unpleasant. I thought that was quite surprising. I don't know why that was, whether it was anything within the rose. So this particular rose was actually a slightly more musky rose rather than old tea rose. So maybe that's why. But ultimately, we don't really know what the idiosyncratic or personal reasons that these people had to react in that way. 
all of this data that we got from this activity, I think was really interesting because it shows that we get such a huge range of emotions from different smells. So of these 250 people, there was such a diversity of responses to just these four different smells. And ultimately, I think it means that we really can, obviously, we know we can design gardens, um, but we can really design the experience that we get from the gardens, depending on which scented plants or scented features we put how that might be designed with seasonality in mind, for example, or even different odors coming out throughout 24 hours, so the day and the evening, we really can design the smell landscape and that can create different emotional experiences. What really stands out to me is that there are no positive or negative smells. There are no good or bad smells. There are, of course, a range of emotions. And again, it is not a bad thing to be feeling unpleasant emotions. It's the normal, healthy human experience to have a range of emotions. And that's where I think gardens can become places where we can help to regulate our emotions. So if we are feeling sad, we can go to a garden that perhaps smells with a smell that we find uplifting. But Equally, if we're feeling a bit too angry or too agitated, we can go to a garden that smells with a smell that makes us feel more calm um, or more, more content. And that's where perhaps if you're designing your own garden that you'll be using, you'll be able to kind of tap into these different experiences and memories that you may have had in your childhood, for example. If there was someone that you did not like who always planted lavender, then maybe don't plant lavender because it's more likely to remind you of that person. And obviously the opposite might be true as well. Personally, I think it's quite a common one, but I really like the smell of vanilla, whether that's vanilla ice cream or vanilla yogurt, but also there's a fantastically fragrant Nemesia called Nemesia Wisley Vanilla. I really love smelling that one. Last year I was out in the trials field on the way to work, so I always stopped by. More recently, so just now actually, the Cercidophilium japonicum, also known as the candy floss tree, really smells like sort of burnt sugar. It's a really sweet smell and it really wafts through. You might smell it before you even see the tree. You don't really need to stop and smell the leaves because the whole air kind of smells like candy floss, basically. It's very sweet. So when I do smell it and I'm walking through, it definitely does make me feel a bit happier with a little bit more pep in my step. If you are listening at home, I really encourage you to go out and do some scenting experiments with yourselves try to figure out what different scents trigger different emotions for you. You don't need to ask anyone else's opinion because it will be different for them. Aromatics like herbs are a really good place to start, things like lavender and thyme. And then you can also explore like pelargoniums, for example. So go out and sniff as many plants as you can and figure out what you like best. Thanks to Dr. Shaoman Pui. One scent I recall from childhood is the scent of roses. Our teacher in junior school suggested we make rose water. I don't think she quite understood how rose water is made. It's made by steam distillation of rose petals. But anyway, we did as we were told and gathered up lots of lovely sweet scented rose petals and put them in some water. Well, they all went bad, but never mind. The scent of the roses being gathered has certainly stayed with me. Learning about the science behind well-being is fascinating because so much of what we think is in our control is actually highly determined by our environment. With this in mind, we headed to Wisley's Wellbeing Garden to hear how well-being can be reflected through garden design. 
Hello everybody, my name is Heather Cook and I am the team leader for Seed and Wellbeing. We are currently standing up at the hilltop. We're standing in the Wellbeing Garden. The Wellbeing Garden is one of the three gardens that wraps around the new hilltop building. So the Wellbeing Garden, it's been designed for wellbeing. It's not a therapy garden. So Matt Keatley has incorporated various design elements which can affect the way we engage with nature and with being outside. So plenty of people say that they feel better if they are surrounded or near water. And so we have two different water features within the Wellbeing Garden. So we've got a rill, which gives us the more running water. And I don't think any of us could imagine quite how popular that would be, particularly with young children and families. Even now in the winter, we've got at least three children with their Wellington boots on splashing up and down the rill. Probably more than that, actually. Probably about five or six children now <laughs> running up and down the rill with their Wellington boots on, splashing around and really enjoying themselves and really sort of engaging with the water feature here. I think gardening and being outside in a garden can be beneficial for people of all ages, even very young children who are here enjoying the rill. And of course, you know, that's beneficial too for their parents because if their children are happy and occupied, it gives them a little time for a time out and a cup of coffee and just to relax while the children are occupied. And, you know, obviously that's important for their well-being as well. So we're now sitting in one of the garden rooms. The garden room that we're sitting in has got quite cool colours, so soft greens and greys and whites. We're surrounded by some sort of mid-level panicums, grasses, and they have some lovely autumnal tints at the moment and they provide a semi-screen so we can kind of see out and people can probably see in, but it also gives us quite a good level of screening. And there's some mid-level plants here as well, so we've got some lovely veronicastrums which are just beginning to turn autumnal colours now. Then we've got some lavenders which have been clipped but give us that lovely evergreen structure and some lovely chamois as well, chamisa paris, which have lovely bright green foliage and are very tactile and you just want to stroke them. It's really nice in the summer, actually, when we come into the garden and we see people sitting down on the benches in all the garden rooms. And some of them might just be sitting quietly reading a book. Others might be with a family member having a cup of coffee. Others might be having a picnic lunch with a group of friends. It's really nice to see people using the garden rooms and the garden space in different ways. So it's a real kind of exploration of all the different ways that people can engage with a garden. Garden. So the garden was designed so that it is accessible for everyone and there are meandering paths, they're all quite wide, so it means that people in wheelchairs and mobility vehicles, small children, elderly people, they can all access the garden in its completeness. So I think you can still get a sense of well-being even in a well-designed structured garden as opposed to a kind of a wild area. I think it can still give us that sense of well-being and calmness. 
So we're now standing at the top of our pine beds and this is a very different part of the garden. So this is where we have our dwarf pines and our rosemaries and the idea is that they eventually will be cloud pruned so that you'll have some undulating shapes and that you can look through and look down towards views of the laboratory and kind of like look through the planting to see different landscapes and vistas. So whereas before we were sitting in quite an enclosed space, this is very open and yes, it will evoke a very different feel. It's quite a nice part of the garden to come into because it's more open and you can look ahead to the enclosed areas and as you're coming up this slight incline, various areas of the garden hidden from you. So you've got that as a kind of a surprise and it's sort of like encouraging you to move up the hill and to explore the different areas of the garden. So I think well-being really will be different for everybody. Everybody has their own individual likes and dislikes in terms of planting. So just remember to go with whatever it is that you like, what colours you like, what scents, what plants, textures and smells you like as well. And just have fun with exploring and trying new things. And remember, don't ever be discouraged if things don't go to plan. For example, this year we discovered in the Wellbeing Garden that some of the more woodland plants didn't really like being planted in full sun. So we've taken a decision to remove those and substitute with something that's a bit more drought tolerant and likes full sun. And also it's quite exposed up here. So, you know, plants that like shelter don't necessarily do very well either. So again, you know, the garden is constantly evolving as we try new and different things. Thanks, Heather. As Heather says, not everything is straightforward in gardens, and I was particularly interested with her replacement of the rhododendrons, which are not a particularly drought-tolerant plant, to put it mildly, with dwarf pines, Pinus mugo, which is a highly tolerant plant. It's those little hummocky plants that are a key point that the garden designer who designed this garden originally, Matt Keatley, is very fond of. So the dwarf pine is an excellent choice that's very, very hardy. The well-being garden is quite an informal planting, but that doesn't mean to say it's inaccessible. You can have a planting like this with good paths so that anybody can get round and enjoy it. And in fact, the stream that flows through this garden is cunningly designed to be accessible all over. You can walk through it or step over it or push a wheelchair through it or a pram with the greatest of ease. And of course, children love standing in this little shallow stream. What these new gardens at Wisley show is that green space and nature can be accessible to anyone whatever their access needs. Which is great because as we've established, these patches of green improve everybody's well-being. So why shouldn't everybody have access to them? Sometimes the struggle to get your dose of vitamin G, that's G for gardening, comes from the huge self-motivation required to get your gardening gloves on in the dead of winter. Which is why community gardening can be the perfect cure to keep you motivated and get you out there. We headed to Gladstone Park, a green space of about 35 hectares in northwest London, to hear what motivates the volunteer gardeners there. 
I'm Helen Goodsell and I represent the Friends of Gladstone Park and our aim is to care for the walled garden, care for the area around, which are the formal parts of the park, but also we do ad hoc things like I wanted to plant a wildlife hedge along the railway line which was just a horrible grey metal fence so we got organised for that and that was part of the gardening group and we got local people involved as well. And also we do the ad hoc thing of removing the bindweed from a whole row of rather fine ewes and clearing areas where people actually come to us and say, can you do something about this? It looks a mess. So we go in and we have a weekend work or a, a Monday or Friday work and work on that. We have a lot to do. We've got to make sure that we get the weeds from all around. But also, people want to get out of the house. I think we've only ever not been able to garden maybe twice in the, the whole eight years where it was really deluging and nobody came because we all agreed not to. But that's an incredibly rare event and you'd be surprised how seldom we cancel anything. And people come along, we all dress up specially, hats, waterproofs a lot, but there's still so much we can be doing in this garden because we've got the central perennial beds and then the beds all around the edge are either evergreens or shrubs, totally different from the centre. So we have a lot to do. For instance, most of the shrubs around here need pruning. They've overhung, people can't get under them. So it's a matter of pruning them down and keeping them shaped because they can otherwise get out of... I say out of control because I quite like things out of control, but in a public place you can't have that. And we also keep the ivy back because that's a real problem. But if you come closer, you can see that all these perennials here, we've got the dead stalks, but we need to make sure that they're not overwhelmed in the spring. Because, I mean, the eryngium obviously wouldn't be because it's a toughie. But there are quite a few other more delicate plants that will just vanish. We lost completely some of the plants due to thuggish yarrow, our native achillea, and that tracks across the garden horribly. So you, we really have to look at that and make sure that it's out of all the plants. So that's something, and everyone knows that now, so we know to track the stolons across. I think gardening for me gives me calm, peace, it brings me in touch with the seasons. It's really quite wonderful because you can see everything asleep, but even when everything's asleep, I can see all the evergreens we planted in the north bed. They're still there. And we planted them in order to give people some interest in the winter. And also we've got winter flowers. We've got the jasmine over there. We've got the hammermillis coming over here. And I'm trying to bring in a much wider range of planting so that people always have something to look at despite the winter. And we've got Viburnum bodnantenso I planted. You know, that is such a lovely plant and such a sweet scent. We've put it near the bench where everyone sits because over in the far corner is the sunniest bench in the park, I think, and the warmest. So people come for kind of comfort, solace, come for peace and quiet, particularly to the wall garden. It's very peaceful and very quiet. And you know we're at the top of a hill. We've got this amazing view across London. It's a very special place. And it's cold, I know, and everyone feels the cold in winter, but there's something about meeting people regularly and feeling, in a sense, that you have to do it. 
because it's good for your well-being. So you might struggle up the hill and we finally get there. But there's always a welcome at the end of people who all know each other because we've got to know each other really well, all of us. And if one of us is down, she or he supports the other. We've just had someone who's just had a stroke and we're all watching out for him and caring for him. So there's a feeling that everyone is important in the group. So I would suggest to everyone who's sitting at home feeling a bit kind of down, I think, because I often feel like that, if you get out into the green space, because there's always grass growing, even in winter, and get in touch with nature, because you've got the birds around eating the seeds on the plants, and you've got the sound of their singing, because they still sing in the winter, and then the robin joins us. And so you get this wonderful feeling that you belong somewhere, and particularly you belong with the people that you're working with. So I would suggest to anyone who's feeling a bit down to try and join a local community group, because no matter how shy or uncomfortable you feel, you'll find your place in one of those. Thanks, Helen. The Friends of Gladstone Park highly encourage new members to get involved. To find out more, check out their website and newsletter. Links to both will be in the show notes. Well, as Helen mentioned, there's much to do. Pruning in particular. Deciduous plants, once they've lost their leaves, they often need pruning, especially fruit and soft fruit bushes. And evergreens, I tend to leave to spring, but if there's some outrageous ones that have got to be trimmed, well, they can be done now too. And it's also clearing up time for me. I've been so busy through the summer that great piles of logs and things have built up, so I sort them all out and uh, get rid of the things I don't want and stack up the things that I do need to keep, like the canes that are in good condition, and have them ready for use in the spring. So even though I like the solace of gardening, of course I've got my colleagues at the RHS and the podcast listeners to keep me accountable and up to scratch so I won't slack off and hibernate until spring, which is always a temptation. Well, that's about it for today. If you've made it this far through the show, please consider giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It's the best way to encourage others to listen to the podcast and help spread the love of gardening. But that's all for now. So from me, Guy Barter, get out there and garden. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. 
Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.